the way where the nights are gay and the sun shines daily on the mountain top. I took a trip on a sailing ship and when I reached Jamaica, I made a stop. But I'm sad to say I'm on my way. Won't be back for many a day. My heart is down, my head is turning around. I had to leave a little girl in Kingston town. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood, as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen, and joining me today, he is the man who played Billy Narthax in the 2003 film National Security, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing very good, David. <laughs> I had no idea who that part was until you mentioned the name. I mean, the name of the movie, not the name yeah. of the person. I, had, I, I was Billy who? <laughs> Narthax? It sounds like a disease of some It kind. sounds like some sort of uh, not, uh, like fungal infection. Yes. It's like something yes. I got in Scotland. I suffer uh, from a very particularly bad case of Narthax myself. Yeah. And, and this was one of those films. Dennis Dugan was directing this. I remember that. And... Uh, I was called in to shoot this for one day, which is which is what you do when you're me sometimes. You get called in to work one day on a movie, and it ends up in your IMDb, and you don't really know what the movie is. And I was shooting with Martin uh, Lawrence in this, and this is the film, I believe we did an earlier podcast about this particular fe- feature in which Martin came with his posse, and... Uh, we were shooting someplace in the bowels. I can say that I can't. The bowels of Los Angeles in uh, like this sheet metal factory, where everything in this factory where we were shooting could kill you. I mean, there were blast furnaces that went like to six thousand degrees, and I'm wearing this huge outfit, and Martin and I are going to rehearse. But Martin's posse was not familiar with the process of rehearsal. So we began rehearsing, and in in the show, Martin is a friend of mine, and I'm working for national security with him, and I put my arm around him to walk him out the door, and the guys pulled their guns on me. His, his bodyguards pulled their guns on me, and he was telling them, cool, man, cool, we're just rehearsing here, we're cool. I go, yeah, yeah, guys, let's be cool. We're cool. Uh, the last, well, you, well, you do have a very threatening aura, Stephen, you know? I do, so. I'm a, especially in sheet mail, but I do want to give this love, <laughs> love letter to Martin Lawrence because he is such a spectacular guy, and we worked together again on uh, Wild Hogs, and the last time I saw Martin was I went to see my son, young Lord William, in Baltimore. And I got on the elevator, and Martin walks on with a couple of his bodyguards. And he looked over at me and goes, Hey, Stephen. I go, Oh, my God, Martin. And I remembered what happened with, with, <laughs> with national security. And I said, like, Martin, I was about to hug you. Is that okay? And the Martin looked at the two bodyguards and says, yeah, it's okay. So he's a great guy. Love Martin. Well, Stephen, um, speaking of movies, Ugh. you know, Stephen, uh, we're recording this in August of 2020 right now, and uh, we're still in the middle of a global pandemic. I, I suspect when this episode is released, we're still going to be dealing with it in some capacity. <laughs> going to just go out on a limb there and say that we're probably still dealing with it somehow? Probably. And, uh, you know, one of the things I miss the most is going to the movie theater. Um, movie theaters are uh, pretty rough uh, as an industry right now because it's kind of quote-unquote inessential and you're sitting in the same space as dozens of other people, breathing the same air as them. It's pretty challenging. Uh, to have movie theaters open right now, uh, maybe they'll be more, more open by the time you're listening to this podcast, but right now there's very, very few. And uh, it's one of the things I miss the most. You know, I used to go once or twice a week. Uh, so I thought I'd ask you, Stephen, tell us about the movies. What was it like to go to the movie theaters back in the day? Oh, back in the day. 
Now, see, David, I was going to say, like, one of the ways I bonded with you at the beginning was the fact that you're the only other guy that spent as much time in a movie theater as me. Uh, I remember, okay, back in the day, when I was a boy, I spent just about every Saturday at the movies. We had local theaters, the Wynwood, the Texas, the Vogue, and the Heights, and they played what they called kid matinees. Uh, These were double features that started at 10 a.m. sharp, for 50 cents, <laughs> 50 cents for two movies. And the line of parents' cars dropping off their little ones unsupervised in front of movie theaters at 9.50 a.m. stretched around the block. Footnote, the absence of any grown-ups was a matter of economics. You see, the price point, 13 years of age. 13 years of age and up had to pay full fare, which often ran between 75 cents and a dollar My mother would give me one dollar and thirty-five cents in change, which was the most money I was ever entrusted with to survive the day. This amount was not random; it was worked out through high-level financial discussions with my father. Here was the breakdown: fifty cents for my ticket, seventy-five cents for food, which included twenty-five cents for a hot dog, fifteen cents for popcorn without butter. 15 cents for a medium Coke, 10 cents for a pickle, 10 cents for a candy bar, Snickers, Milky Way, or Three Musketeers. Snickers or Milky Way were preferred, but Three Musketeers were bigger. And finally, 10 cents for the phone call home. The $1.35 for Saturday Kids Double Feature remained constant, unadjusted for inflation, from ages 7 to 13. Hours of Movies Usually war movies, westerns or monster movies, which occasionally morphed into flying saucer movies. The kid matinees ended about 1 p.m., but if you wanted to, for no extra charge, you could stay and watch the grown-up movie, which was sometimes a war movie or a western, which carried the effect of a triple-feature kid matinee. Once I stayed, not knowing what the movie was, it turned out to be a Sophia Loren movie, and the world was never quite the same. Parents loved kid matinees, who needed a babysitter. They got the morning off and their children could run wild on someone else's watch. It was probably at these kid matinees that I first imagined I wanted to be an actor. I could hang out with the Wolfman and Frankenstein. I could be a soldier or a scientist or a cowboy, and I didn't have to choose. I could change my mind every week. Within that world, I preferred the life of a scientist. Consequently, my favorite, without question, were monster movies, even more than watching Sophia Loren getting caught in the rain. When you think about it, monster movies are very strange. What is a monster movie? It's a story dedicated to examining a human that is not human. If other animals like squirrels could make movies, what would they be about? Nuts, maybe trees, that's it. Even whales. Oceanographers suspect whales are enormously intelligent, but I bet they would only make movies about water. And if they did make monster movies, they would also probably be about humans. The fundamental idea of the horror film is very profound. Take Frankenstein. The monster was made of bits and pieces taken from corpses. Then you add magic, in the case of Frankenstein, some sort of medical scientific procedure that takes lightning from a storm and turns it into the life force. The prominent theme is, can man replace God? Sidebar, during my life, art, science, and technology have demonstrated that even if not replaced, God can be ignored, which amounts to pretty much the same thing. There is a hidden theme that rides under the surface of all monster films, In examining what we consider to be non-human, are we exploring what being human really is? All of my hours at the Wynwood Theater taught me an important type of monster movie is when the creature returns. This isn't just a matter of working the franchise. In terms of stories, we want to know if the creature can change. Expectations are low. After all, Frankenstein, as I mentioned, was assembled from spare parts— Or in the case of Dracula, he was already dead. Or in the case with the mummy, he was dead, he was old, and he was wrapped in tape. 
One of the most dramatic changes was with the creature from the Black Lagoon. In the first film, he lived in the Amazon. He was identified as a Devonian lizard man. It was clear the only thing he wanted was to be left alone. Until he saw the scientist's boat had a woman on it, and then he wanted the woman and to be left alone, which was not a lot different than me growing up in Oak Cliff. But the scientist didn't give a damn about what he wanted. He could be a living fossil. That's big for scientists. They were going to catch him and study him. This was the 1950s. That's only 70 years ago. But the collective unconscious told a very different story about science and scientists than today. In the 1950s, the jury was still out on science. Even though the world had just been saved by the atomic bomb, which was the product of our greatest scientific minds, many wondered if we just created a method for our destruction. Something horrible and uncontrollable had been let loose. It's interesting to note that both the Japanese and American versions of Godzilla were released during this time. Sidebar. I never look at history to understand the collective unconscious of an era. I rely on horror films. Here's a brief list of what they tell me. Movies from the 1930s and 40s. Frankenstein warns us, don't trust science. Dracula, that the old envy the young. Wolfman, that magic is real, beware. And The Mummy is about fear of aging or what you don't know about the past can kill you. Films from the 1950s, Godzilla, Mothra, Rodan, are all about the dangers of atomic energy. The Blob, never trust anything from space. Invasion of the Body Snatchers is about the threat of communism and never trust anything from space. From the 1960s, Roger Corman horror films teach us that horror is a cheap emotion. Edgar Allan Poe horror films with Vincent Price teach us that people from the past did drugs too. The flood of vampire movies of the 70s were about the spread of herpes. Zombie films of the 1980s to the present, well, zombie films, zombie films, what can I say? They are the chameleons of the horror genre. They can represent anything the current age gets worked up about. First, zombie films warned us about hippies. The stoned-out great unwashed were the beginning of the end of civilization. Then zombies were conformists, middle-class America leading to the end of civilization. Then they were about AIDS. Then racism. Then nationalism. Then our fear of people driving while looking at their cell phones. And now, the coronavirus. It's no big surprise that the creature from the Black Lagoon doesn't fare too well at the hands of scientists. He set on fire and shot. So much for preserving the living fossil. Self-interest can change the noblest pursuits, even with science. But the creature returns. Twice. It's in the third film, his second reincarnation, that his change is the most dramatic. The creature is burned so badly by his human captors that his gills are destroyed. He's forced to use his lungs. He becomes like us, a creature of the land who could only dream of the sea. He's kept in a pen like an animal. He observes. He sees that whether scientist or pacifist, man is fundamentally violent. Man's soul is easily altered by what he desires. His reason can be reduced to shrewdness. Through sexual desire and jealousy, the scientific encampment falls into chaos. The creature escapes and becomes both rescuer and avenger. After exacting his terrible retribution, the creature, even though he has lost his gills, turns to the sea, the only home he knew. In the final frames, he descends beneath the waves into certain death in search of peace. I remember seeing this film at the Winwood Theater, and I cried through the ending. I was so embarrassed when they turned up the lights. All classic monsters have a fascinating contradiction. In spite of their bent for destruction and occasionally murder, the creatures of Saturday matinees could also display nobility. Nobility is a complicated human attribute. You won't find it in squirrels or whales or cats, especially cats. Footnote, for the record, I know that there are cats that can smell cancer, 
ingenious whales and kind dolphins. They're dogs that walked hundreds of miles to get back to their old home. That is remarkable. It may even be genius, but it's not nobility. My whole life, I always thought of nobility as a gesture, an act that displayed a superior emotional state like kindness or generosity, self-preservation or sacrifice. And the dictionary agrees. It defines nobility as displaying superior emotions or ideals. And that all sounds very good, but it doesn't mean much. What are superior ideals? Emotions. I think nobility begins as an acknowledgement of the rules, then understanding that there are different sets of rules that can apply to the same situation. Then, after understanding various priorities, the noble man, noble woman, follows the more profound human choice. Example. It's not noble to stop at a crosswalk and let pedestrians pass. That's the law. You get a ticket if you don't do it. It approaches nobility if you stop on a residential street when you see young parents trying to teach their very young children how to ride their new bicycles on a Sunday afternoon. Now, that's also against the law in Los Angeles for bicyclists to ride on a sidewalk or to cross in the middle of the street. But in this case, the noble path doesn't follow the rules of the road. It is to honor the path that prioritizes childhood, growth, and all of the fear and wonder that entails. Nobility dictates that the driver must instantaneously recall the difficulties of being a young parent as well as remembering their first bike ride when he or she still needed training wheels, then making a deliberate choice to stop in the middle of the road, signal to any drivers behind them, and honor the higher order. That could be dangerous. That could cause an accident. But it is noble. There are those who will take the position, no one can decide what rules are more profound. Everything is a matter of a point of view, I understand that position, but that world will never have nobility. When everything has value, nothing has meaning. Meaning only exists in comparison with something else. Is there a difference between eating with a knife and fork or eating with your hands? Not really. Not if your ruler is putting food in your mouth. This leads to a societal theory that a more accurate indicator of what kind of a person someone is isn't necessarily what they do, but what ruler are they using. That's why the Frankenstein monster was noble, even though he was a murderer. In The Bride of Frankenstein, the monster is destroyed not by the torches of the villagers. He sees that his bride hates him. She can only see his monstrous appearance and not his desire to be loved. He ends both of their lives by destroying the laboratory with his mournful final words, We are better off dead. His ruler was love, not life at any cost. Nobility. When Beth and I appeared on the San Diego show and lost in the final round guessing the price of a Beatles lunchbox, we had no idea we were embarking on a long and winding road with a monster of sorts. Budge Threlkeld was a creature of impulse. He was friendly, but never a friend. He understood generosity, but was never generous. He could fill a room with uncontrollable laughter, often at his own expense, but he wasn't humble. His appetites were terrifying. His counsel was true, but not wise. But Budge was a kind of a nobleman. He always took the path that taught me a lot about myself. He was the recurring character who revealed the monster within me and taught me to respect and to fear when the creature returns. Sounds of laughter everywhere and the dancing girls swing to and fro. I must declare my heart is there Though I've been from Maine to Mexico But I'm sad to say I'm on my way Won't be back for many a day My heart is down, my head is turning around I had to leave a little girl in Kingston Town In the Talmud, 
the set of holy writings in Judaism that dissect and interpret the teachings of the Torah, there is a warning. Never get into a situation that requires a miracle for your deliverance. Now, this seems to make perfect sense to modern ears. It's a derivation of what they taught us at the YMCA. <laughs> Stay out of the deep end of the pool unless you could swim. But the rabbis who offered this advice were working with a different ruler. They weren't just saying, stay out of situations you can't handle. They were speaking literally. They believed that there was a cost to everything, a cost that would have to be repaid, even for miracles, if not by you, by your children, and your children's children. I'm always confronted with the question, what does God give you? Handful of holidays, a few fairy tales like virgin birth, eternal life, heaven and hell? Well, yeah, certainly all of those. And Judaism has more holidays than most, and most of them are unpronounceable. However, the wise men of the Talmud would argue that what God truly provides is accountability. All morality is, is who pays for what. All religion is, is how you pay. The cost of what we do appears somewhere else down the line, much like Einstein's theory of relativity stating that energy cannot be created or destroyed. It only changes form. Our blessings and curses will be paid forward in ways we can hardly expect. After the San Diego TV show crashed and burned, Budge was still an underground star. Beth and I never had the chance to see the man in his element. That changed one night when Ron, our friend, screenwriter, and part-time pot salesman, told us Budge was doing stand-up in a club in Hollywood at midnight. Beth and I decided to see what all the excitement was about. The earlier acts were running long. Budge wasn't introduced until 12.30. But things didn't go as planned. After the intro and wild applause... There was no budge. He was introduced again. Nothing. The MC looked backstage and called. Again, no one. The audience started laughing. The MC now existed somewhere between flop sweat and, well, what do you expect at this hour? He shrugged. He thanked everyone for coming. The audience looked around and began to gather their things to leave. The confusion was interrupted by a familiar voice from the front door of the theater that led out to the street. Hold it! Hold it, folks! Hold it! I'm here! Everyone turned in their seats. Standing at the back of the room was the man in the baggy dark blue suit with the non-matching small fedora with a feather in it. The audience started cheering as Budge, a.k.a. Sam Diego, started toward the stage. And he began singing, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, even though it was July. His singing was not good, but not bad. His baritone was usually in key. There was something Las Vegasy in his presentation. His smile and swagger were somewhere between Wayne Newton and Siegfried and Roy. He winked at audience members, kissed a few ladies' hands in a gallant fashion, then once an older man's hand. That got some laughs. He paused on his way to the stage to say hello to people he knew. He called some by name. When he passed Beth and me, he stopped and did a double take. Hey, kids, good to see ya. Budge turned to the audience and gestured to us and called out, Folks, just so you know, this guy knows his whiskey. Jack Daniels, right? This was a reference to the Jack Daniels Budge gave us as a gift and then later broke into our house and drank himself. I was surprisingly flattered that he remembered. Nobility. The audience laughed and gave Beth and me a little extra applause. Budge resumed his Christmas song. He jumped up on stage. Christmas is such a special season. I'm so glad we could spend this time together. The audience applauded and laughed. Thank you, thank you, folks. I deserve your applause far less than you can imagine. The show was running a little late tonight, so I wasn't too sure what to do. Shall I go on? Shall I go home and go to bed? I ended up taking a third option, which no professional comedian should do. I dropped some acid in the alley behind the theater. Budge checked his watch. Yeah, that was about an hour ago, and 
I'm starting to trip my brains out. The audience started cheering. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad some of you find this funny, but I am serious. And I have very little idea where I am now. And I know for sure I have no idea what I'm going to say. (sighs) The one uniting factor of all comics, the great and the not so great, is they all know what they're going to say. The audience continued to laugh. Budge fumbled around his suit, checking his pockets. Oh, 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 no, no, no. Damn it. I think I lost my gun. Pause for an uncertain silence. I'm serious. The audience wasn't too sure how to react. I always carry it. I mean, we are in Hollywood and you never know when you're going to have to shoot someone. I know it's not funny, but it's true. Sometimes you just need a gun. As long as you're responsible. Budge checked his pockets again. Oh well, it'll turn up. Budge paced around the stage and started telling a story that could have been the beginning of a routine. Footnote, with Budge, you never knew when his routine started or stopped. And they weren't confined to the stage. That was his genius and his curse. His routines almost never had jokes. On this particular night, he told a story from his hitchhiking days, if he ever really had any. He gets picked up by a hitchhiker's dream, a beautiful blonde in a red convertible. The story ambles and wanders, never taking a direct route, just like a hitchhiker. The bullet points, as I recall, she takes him to her home in the desert. The story takes a sexual turn, as expected. Then it takes several unexpected turns. She ends up getting killed. He doesn't know if he should bury her or call the sheriff. He ends up stealing her car. In the glove compartment, he finds her gun, a silver pearl-handled revolver, which he steals. Budge then explained to us, the audience, that that was the gun he's carried ever since, for protection, until tonight, when he got high on acid and may have lost it in the alley. Budge finished his story. Horrible, hilarious, unsettling. The audience loved it and gave him a standing ovation. Thank you, thank you for your enthusiasm. As you know, when you're a performer, the first rule of show business after you get that kind of applause is get off the stage. Everyone cheered. Budge jumped off the stage and the MC walked out to send us home. But then Budge jumped back up on stage and took the mic from him. Thank you, thank you. I would love to leave and let you folks go home, go to bed. But the second rule of show business when you get that kind of applause is do another 20 minutes. Have a seat. The audience obeyed. Budge started wandering around the stage, trying to think of something to say. Then he started crawling. Then he passed out. We, the audience, watched in confusion as he lay there motionless for what felt like a few minutes. Occasionally a hand would twitch, and we would laugh and applaud, but then nothing. Eventually, Budge sat up and looked around, disoriented. Oh, I'm still here. Thought I was dreaming. I'm sorry, guys. There's no reason for you to stay and have to watch this. That acid's just, oh man, it's just really kicking in. I'm tripping my brains out right now. If I could walk and left the stage, I wouldn't know where to go because I forgot where I parked my car. But I may have to come home with one or more of you, but you won't have to worry about your safety. I promise. I'll be good. I'll sleep on your couch or on your floor. In fact, You could just leave me in your car, and I'll be gone by morning. Someone got up to leave. Budge watched and frowned. Excuse me, sir? Sir, you? You, sir. Sit down. The older man stopped in the aisle and looked back at Budge on stage. Sir, I mean it. I don't want to be rude. But if you walk out on me now, pal, I don't know what will happen. The older man said, that's your problem. It's almost 2 a.m. I'm going home. Budge countered him. Sir? The man stopped again. Yes? You're going to leave anyway. The older man said, I don't know if you think this is funny, but it's not. I'm tired. I'm going to bed, and I think you may need professional help, either from a psychiatrist or from a real comedian. And the man walked out. A hush fell over the room. Wow, said Budge. That was harsh. Very harsh.
It's hard on the old ego when you get a public dressing down like old Ben Franklin just gave me. He didn't understand how much we have in common. We're both too old to die young. And that's a good thing. The MC walked to the stage and extended his hand to Budge. Sam, Sam, come on. <laughs> come on, man. I'm offering my hand in peace. Great set, but we have to lock up. Folks, let's hear it for Sam Diego. And the audience offered scattered applause. Budge got to his feet and bowed, doffed his fedora, and it was over. He stepped off the stage. The MC led him down the aisle toward the exit. Budge nodded mournfully as he headed for the street. The audience whistled and shouted bravos. Then all of a sudden, Budge broke free and ran back up onto the stage. No, 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 it's not going to be that easy. You can't keep a thoroughbred from running. I'm feeling like I could go all night. Wait, wait. Ho, ho, yeah, good news. Could it be? Yes, it is. I found my gun. Budge pulled out the silver pearl-handled revolver from his back pocket and held it up in the air. Everyone stopped and stared. Yep, there she is. And yes, she's loaded. Pointless to carry a gun that's not. It's been rough since I lost weight. Excessive drinking. I always thought drinking puts weight on. That's true. But excessive drinking can take the weight off. You ladies should try that if you want to find your summer body. I'm still trying to find the balance between regular and excessive drinking. Keep me at my fighting weight. Now that the bottom half of me is slimmed down, can't find things in my pants. That's where my wiener comes in. I always know where that is. Usually my gun is eight inches to the right and around the back of my best friend. Now most of the audience hurried for the door. Beth and I stayed. Budge paced around the stage and rambled for another 30-40 minutes and finally decided he had beaten the remaining handful of us audience members to a pulp at around 2.30. We got up to leave. Budge jumped off the stage and asked Beth and me if we could walk him to his car to make sure he didn't get mugged. Budge, do you think Beth and I look intimidating enough to scare off muggers? No, pal. Not intimidation. When we are three and one of us is a woman, and a short woman, no offense. It appeals to a different type of predator, not the kind of derelict you find on the West Coast. That's more of a cold-weather East Coast maniac. Believe me, with you kids, I'm much safer. But it's more dangerous for us, Budge. Oh, yes, of course. But danger is the spice that makes life interesting. I thought that was art, I said. Budge put his hand on my shoulder and smiled. Ah, an idealist. As a rule, I love idealists. Just not on Hollywood Boulevard after midnight. Budge became a frequent visitor at our house. He held court at parties. He told stories. He helped serve food and wash dishes. He rolled joints with the quiet expertise of a Swiss clockmaker. You see, pal, you need the longer leaves near the tip. Don't crumple them. It allows for a better draw. You get some of your dried small bits bud at the top. They like quicker that way. Budge, I thought your show the other night was brilliant. What, the train wreck? Yeah, yeah. Train wreck was the best part. Budge looked at me as if I might have just insulted him. You didn't like the story of the hitchhiker's dream? No, no, I loved it. But for my money, that's not what was remarkable. Hey, I did something remarkable? Yeah, if that's the word for it. You terrified and confused an entire room of people. That's it? 
Yeah, pretty much. Just my opinion, I said. Well, that's the compliment. Yeah, I think that's hard to do, especially in Los Angeles. Budge and I went outside and lit up the joint. Sidebar, the night in Los Angeles seemed different back then than it does now. There weren't any stars. That was my impression. Oak Cliff had stars. So did Illinois. When Beth and I lived in the little house on Hayworth, occasionally I would see stars. But in the early 1980s, when we moved to the house on the hill, the one with the swimming pool, up here, there were no stars. I figured it may have been a combination of the marine layer and living in the hills above Hollywood, too much reflected light, or maybe our lifestyle had changed. Now that we were up all night and slept until noon, when your night becomes your day, you're usually too busy getting into trouble for stargazing. In the early 1980s, cocaine was occasionally used as a supplement to improve alertness at night. I had no real desire to take the drug. It was expensive. It only wound your clock for a few minutes, and then you had to reload. It was a waste. Cocaine's only virtue is that it had the power to make you think that it wasn't a waste. It and anything you happened to be doing when you were taking it. You might think you were writing the greatest rock and roll song in history, or the greatest screenplay, or doing the greatest job rewiring the garage without the benefit of proper wire or tools or knowing what you were doing. The two things you weren't when you took cocaine, you weren't the greatest lover and you didn't eat the greatest meal. It's rumored that cocaine was a type of anesthetic. I believe that. It certainly seemed to deaden everything below my neck. While Budge and I talked about his show by the pool, he leaned in and said confidentially, Stevie, my boy, love the beer and the pot, but if we're going to have a creative discussion, maybe we need something with a bit more oomph. And he raised his eyebrows and smiled. Like what, Budge? Got any Coke? No. No. Budge looked at me with a mischievous grin. You wouldn't be holding out on me, would you? No, Budge. I, I don't have any. I only use cocaine when Rick or Ganey come over. They usually have some and I share. Ah, sharing. Such a wonderful attribute. You know, monkeys don't share. They fight for every last banana. If we shared more, we would be less like the monkeys and more like the angels. Yeah, I think. Also, I wouldn't know where to get any Coke. Huh? said Budge. Malcolm. Malcolm? Yeah, anytime. He hangs out in the parking lot of Fellini's, the Italian joint. Yeah, I, I know Fellini's. I go there all the time. Well, that's where Malcolm is. Nice guy. Jazz musician. He sells out back. Really? Yeah. I never knew. Budge checked his watch. He's probably there now. Want to go meet him? I'll introduce you. Now? <laughs> no time like the present. You have a hundred? A hundred. In cash? No, man. In green stamps. Of course, cash. If we're going to meet Malcolm, might as well kill two chickens. Uh, so it, it cost a hundred dollars? going rate. But it keeps. Coke hates moisture. The climate of Southern California is perfect. We'll give it a try tonight. It'll be fun. Then keep the rest in your drawer with your socks. It'll be there safe and warm next time you want to party. Budge looked at me and smiled and started singing Jamaica Farewell with his pleasant baritone. I joined him in harmony. It sounded very nice in a non-professional intoxicated late night party way. Hey, pal, that was unusually pleasant, said Budge. Come on, let's go to the piano. Can you play Jamaica Farewell? Well, it sounds like three chords. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Well, let's sing a bit. Then we'll go see Malcolm. You drive. I have warrants. And that was the beginning of Wednesday nights with Malcolm. I never planned on it being a regular thing, but Budge was way off in his estimation of the shelf life of a vial of cocaine. It wasn't a couple of months. It was closer to a couple of hours. If friends were coming by, I bought two of the little dark yellow glass vials. Malcolm was a very interesting man. Jazz musician in between bands. 
very soft-spoken, not gregarious like Budge, and not sinister like you would imagine a drug dealer would be. He was more of a quiet intellectual. Malcolm said selling cocaine was like jazz. The need to play inspired the existence of the song, not the other way around. As long as the desire to play existed, he would be here in the parking lot. Every night except Mondays. The restaurant was closed Mondays. Do people who own the restaurant mind you selling drugs in the parking lot, I asked. Malcolm smiled and looked at me with a veil of innocence. Oh, they don't know I'm here. I don't think. Malcolm chuckled to himself, and I left. There was one Wednesday I didn't visit Malcolm. I wanted to, but something intervened. I got an idea for a screenplay without the assistance of cocaine. I stayed home and wrote, and characters and dialogue flowed. I took a break sometime after midnight. I hadn't felt so happy and alive for a long time. The next morning, the phone was ringing off the hook. Did you hear? What? I asked. About the robbery, Cheryl said. Robbery? At Fellini's. Armed robbery. A gang of masked men stormed in the back door last night with machine guns. They ordered everyone up against the wall and emptied their pockets. They took money, purses, watches, everything. The police think they were looking for drugs. They had a sting operation in place for weeks. They did? Well, that's what I heard, said Cheryl. But Fellini's? It's just a mom-and-pop Italian joint, I said. That's what I thought, too. But, Stephen, they were selling cocaine in the parking lot. Can you believe that? Well, it's Los Angeles. I believe anything. It was in the paper. Beth and I stopped going to Fellini's. Well, that's not true. We went one more time. I found a large worm at the bottom of my Italian salad squirming in the vinaigrette. Beth said, well, at least you know the salad is fresh. Then we quit going. I never saw Malcolm again. I never saw the unexpected poetry in that my love of writing probably saved me from having a bad night. Budge was disappointed that our supply had dried up, but one evening over a reefer, he looked at me and shook his head. It's a miracle, pal. What's a miracle, Budge? That you weren't there with Malcolm. They probably would have killed you. Nah, they would have just taken my wallet. No, pal. They would have killed you. Then they would have taken your wallet. That's too much work for a wallet. You don't get it, said Budge. Killing is nothing for people like this. They dig it. They enjoy it. It's good you weren't there. It's a miracle. Ah, Budge, it's what I call a lucky accident. Budge looked at me. There's a difference? We sat in silence for a moment. Then Budge took a big hit off of the joint and blew a cloud of smoke into the starless night. Beth was especially partial to Budge. I assumed it was a combination of his sense of humor and her soft spot for self-destruction. But I was surprised when she mentioned that she thought Budge could be the best choice for Max Sam the Balloon Man in her play The Miss Firecracker Contest, which was in the works for a New York production at the Manhattan Theater Club. Beth had asked me to direct the play and wanted to know what I thought. Unfortunately, I thought she had a point. Budge was funny, but not in an actorly way with precision and timing and technique. No, 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 no. There was something ragged and dangerous about him which could work for the part. And there was the X factor. For want of a better word, like Max Sam the Balloon Man, Budge had nobility. You can't fake nobility. You either have it or you don't. 
Budge had a sense of the order of the world and was very comfortable, even proud, to be very near the bottom of that order. His soul was always looking upward, which, from a distance, could be mistaken for heaven. In truth, Budge's soul forever striving upward was not his looking for salvation, but his looking for an edge. He was always seeking a break in the armor, to find someone's weakness where he could gain an advantage. This wasn't a secret. Budge talked about it in his stand-up comedy, in his conversation, in his lifestyle. Budge was more than happy to pull out a razor blade and cut out lines on a mirror as long as you were buying the cocaine. The fact that Budge made this apparent was his edge. Budge graciously allowed everyone around him to feel superior in any number of ways. Just about everyone was more honest, worked harder, had more money, had a healthier lifestyle. He joked about it. One of his noble traits was that he rarely spoke poorly of anyone, because just about everyone was doing better than he was. He was truthful in that respect. Another attribute of Maxam the balloon man. His self-interest always seemed to be less of a character flaw and more of a justifiable survival instinct. I brought up the subject one night by the pool. Uh, Budge, question, what would you think of going to New York and doing Beth's play there? Budge did a spit take for my amusement. (laughs) Pal, it would be an honor. A chance to act in the Big Apple? Of course, there are some women in the city I'll need to steer clear of. I owe them some money. But I can keep a low profile. Budge? Budge, this is a big deal. It means a lot to Beth. It's not like doing stand-up where you could be an hour late and come on stage tripping your brains out. There, There's a lot of rehearsal. It requires a lot of discipline. Buddy, I don't share this with many people. But I've done time for various mistakes I've made. Bad judgment on my part. But let me tell you something about the slammer. You develop discipline. Discipline for sure. Budge, budge, budge. I know you just meant to instill me with confidence, but the slammer speech didn't do it. You have to promise me you won't let us down. I won't, pal. I know you have more on the line than me. You're directing the whole shebang. I imagine you don't want to be letting Beth down, so your trust in me is doubly moving. Thanks, Budge. Couple questions. Yeah, sure, shoot. This is a paying job? Yes, Budge, it's professional theater. You get paid every week. Wonderful, wonderful. And the job is open-ended? Yes, if we get good reviews and we are successful. Well, Crimes of the Heart ran for over a year. I see, I see. Big commitment, Budge said. Yes, potentially. And the theater provides a place for me to stay. A no, actually no. You would have to find a place, but maybe you could swap out with an actor in New York who wants to come to L.A. for a while. That can work. I'll ask around. As it turned out, one of the first calls I made was successful. Jim McClure was coming out west to work on a potential film project. He was more than happy to swap with Beth and me. He would stay in the house on the hill, and Budge could stay in his apartment on 84th Street. I called up Budge with the news, screaming, hollering, laughing on the other end of the line. I can't believe it, pal. This is happening. Yes, Budge, it can happen. And the best part is that Jimmy says he's flexible. If the show's a hit, he says he'll just stay out here in L.A. All you have to do is pay his rent, which is like nothing, you know, New York, rent control. Yeah, said Budge. What is it, a couple hundred a month? If that, and you'll be making more than twice that a week. Oh, 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 we're doing this, pal. Life is good. I'm so happy. Thank you, thank you, and I won't let you kids down. In the next few days, two remarkable events occurred. The first had to do with the play. Beth and I approached the Manhattan Theater Club with our three casting preferences. Footnote, in New York, the playwright does not have sweeping casting power for his or her play. To get cast in a play in New York, you usually need three yes votes. 
one from the playwright, one from the director, and one from the producer. One no vote, and your choice is out. So the no vote is very powerful in negotiating. It's often used by the writer or director or producer in getting his or her casting choice in the show. We asked for Holly Hunter to play the role of Carnell Scott, the lead, Belita Marino for the role of Popeye, and Budge Threlkelp for Max Sam, the balloon man. Of the three, the first person who got the theater's yes was Budge Threlkelp. Budge! The Manhattan Theater Club wanted to think over casting Holly Hunter, the epitome of theatrical dynamite and one of the greatest talents of our generation. But they were okay with Budge, whose resume featured some stand-up comedy, a failed cable TV show, and amateur theater in Colorado. The second remarkable event had to do with the play as well. I got a call from the Los Angeles Police Department. Budge Threlkeld had been arrested and I was his one phone call. That was The Creature Returns, a series of stories as told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. You're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, this is the first in a multi-part series of episodes dealing with this uh, this story, right? That is correct. I think this would be... We got three in a row now, David. Three in a row that carried this story to its conclusion. Yeah, so if you were filled with rage at the lack of resolution from this episode... (laughs) Fear not, there's going to be a new one next week that's going to take the story uh, a little bit farther forward. So until then, Stephen, you know, we've been making a YouTube version of this podcast that you can find on YouTube. Where can people find that, Stephen? I think you would go to youtube.com slash Tobofiles. That is correct. Oh, no, I did it. I did it. You're nailing it. You're nailing it. Um, You know, I I put the little recorder by my bed at night, and when I go to sleep, it just plays over and over again, and I will remember this. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, Yeah, and uh, find more episodes of this podcast at TobolowskiFiles.com. If you want to see more of my work or hear more of my work, uh, check me out on YouTube. I'm at YouTube.com slash Dave Chensky. I also have another podcast called Culturally Relevant Check it out wherever your podcast can be downloaded. This episode was powered by Simplecast. Check out Simplecast.com for a great podcast management and analytics solution. Thanks to Simplecast for making this podcast possible this season. And until next week, we'll see you then for another episode of The Tobolowski Files. Adios. <laughs> <laughs>